0: Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and minutemen to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz back in the house here on Tuesday. And what is special about today? Well, March 23rd. This was a couple months before... The signing of the Declaration of Independence, 1776. The famous speech delivered by Patrick Henry. I know not what course others may take, but is for me. Give me liberty or give me death. Very simple. There was no uh, nuance or posturing about process, thumb sucking. He understood the outcome we needed, and he was willing to do what was needed to be done to achieve that outcome today we're going to talk about the future of conservatism being in outcomes not in dogma doctrines or really just process and this is our problem we get caught up on nonsense we need to have outcomes for our civilization on a culture on sovereignty on security on, on civil society as it relates to the issues of our time, COVID fascism. And we need to do everything we can to achieve those goals. It's that simple. There's nothing else that matters. So later today, we are going to have a special guest on, Josh Hammer, to discuss his views of the future of conservatism. Meanwhile, we do have a lot of New news items. We have a lot going on in South Dakota, which is great. I love the fact that finally we have conservative focus and pressure on red states not being red up to their fullest potential. There's a lot of that going on throughout the country. Again, some bad news in legislatures, some good news in legislatures. But the point is, this is where it matters. This is where the future of our country will be won or lost. This is why I started Constitution Action Network. To focus on our state teams, if you haven't signed up, go to conaction.network, sign up for your state. I'm looking at Ohio, Florida, Arkansas, Idaho, South Dakota now, obviously I'm focused on. We'll talk about that if we have some time later. But first, I want to introduce you to today's sponsor because you're going to need something to calm you when you hear what I'm going to tell you. Bonner Private Wine Partnership. Now, folks, I'm not big into drinking, but sometimes at the end of the day, I do need to sip wine to calm me down, (laughs) as you could tell. Now, obviously, if you're going to drink wine, you may as well well drink the tastiest and healthiest wine around. Down in Argentina, they make this really dark red wine from Malbec grapes, grown at 9,000 feet. They've lab-tested these wines and found that they contain up to 10 times the levels of longevity and heart health nutrient called resveratrol. It's powerful stuff, folks. It pops up again and again in studies of longevity, heart health, and brain health. They have 90% less sugar, fewer chemicals, fewer additives. Plus, they're great on barbecue steak, red meat, and red wine. Doesn't get better than that. It's got notes of blackberry, leather, cherry, and smoke. So if you guys go to conservativewine.com, they are giving you 50% off their best Malbecs. And you'll also get 50% off shipping. Wine makes a great gift as well, even if it's just a gift to yourself. Treat yourself with conservativewine.com today. That's conservativewine.com today. And folks, you're going to need this for your blood pressure. So we're talking about the 225th anniversary of the Stamp Act. Obviously, the, or 245th, I mean, anniversary of the Stamp Act. And we're also talking about Patrick Henry's speech. Right now, we have a political prisoner in this country. We have Marlena Hackney-Pavlov-Pavlov locked up in jail in Lansing, Michigan for opening her business. While we have illegals teeming over the border, not only not getting punished, but having taxpayer uh, hotel stays, Marlena, an immigrant from Poland who escaped communism, is now suffering something worse than she ever suffered under the Soviets. Where she had her license taken away, she was thrown in jail, dirtbag state troopers locked her up. Shame on them. May God punish them. I'm sick of this mindless, blind, back the blue garbage. We back the blue that backs us. I'm sick of dogma and doctrines taken to the absolute. No. These guys are standing down when it comes to violent criminals, especially if they're of a certain ilk. But if it's a white immigrant from Eastern Europe, no, no, no. In our two-tier justice system, it means nothing. She is being held for 93 days without bail. As all these people, you know, all these stories you see in New York City on the subways where they punch an elderly person in the face. And it turns out the guy that attacked the Asian yesterday, they caught, as predicted, nine felonies. I'm sure he's going to get released with some bail, if not no bail. Here, Marlena is held without any bail. Then we have Rick Martin. He works for a constitutional law firm, but he himself is not a lawyer. And he was not trying to practice law. He was just trying to serve as her assistant because she didn't understand the language so well. You know, we're always so into accommodating people who are immigrants, illegal immigrants even, for language barriers in court. And this subhuman judge... From Ingham County, which is really Greater Lansing, she ordered the judge locked up for contempt of court. Now I'm the lawyer locked up. So now the lawyer and Marlena are locked up. I mean, they're filing a habeas corpus petition, but I don't know what's going to happen with that. Rosemary, Acalina. Is her name. She is one of the most radical judges in the country. She has a Twitter account that she tweets every day, this radical gender bender stuff. She's a nutcase. Mind you, that Marlena is on the West Shore in Allegan County, but rather than being judged in her home county, she was taken to one of the most liberal counties before the most liberal judge in the entire country. That is called persecution. A political prisoner. That's what we have in this country. A tale of two immigrants. This dirtbag judge is an immigrant from Germany, but she's acting like Germany in the 1930s. She has a government job that she'll never lose, but now she has the power to fine and lock up someone who is losing their job from illegal unconstitutional edicts, and she's saying, we're going to follow the law. You are selfish. You're spreading COVID when, by the way, every study has shown that bars and restaurants do not spread. CDC data showed when they reopened, nothing more happened. Kansas had a study showing they represented 0.91% of the transmission and not a single death in the state. There's been studies from Switzerland. It's a myth that restaurants are spreading it. And she's meanwhile tweeting all this stuff about pandemics as as she has plaintiffs and, and defendants coming before her. And then you have Marlena, who's an immigrant who came here for freedom, started her own business, shut down. And the courts are persecuting us, and we have nowhere to go in the federal courts for redress. When every criminal and illegal alien can get whatever they want. Any transgender this, trans fat that can get whatever they want from the courts. So here we have this woman when government owes her just compensation under the Fifth Amendment. Instead, she's being fined and locked up. Folks, this is worse than any point under British rule when Patrick Henry gave his speech. Our government has no legitimacy whatsoever. Therefore, we have the right to abolish it. So certainly we have the right to pursue our just outcomes peacefully. Certainly with state legislatures. I don't want to hear this sophomoric nonsense, the sophistry of, oh, well, I don't know if we can do this, Daniel. I don't know if it follows the state... Procedures or, or, you know, these rules. We get hung up on that as the other side violates every tenet of individual liberty, natural law, the Declaration, the Constitution. But this is what's happening in Michigan now. I have Kimberly Weigart, the owner of Cracked Egg that we had on from Western Pennsylvania, you know, shes they're holding an event, too. You know, she's too scared to go to jail now, and I don't blame her, because you can't have one or two people be left out to, to dry. That's what's happening. There aren't enough of them to make a difference. So we need to fight it more politically in a different way. It's not worth them sacrificing themselves. But this subhuman, maggot, sorry excuse for a human being. Again, Ingham County Circuit Judge Rosemary Akalina... On the same day, oh, she's a big stickler for law, same day she locked up Marlena with no bail, she let out two repeat violent drug offenders. Again, there is no sense, shred of legitimacy, but she's concerned about the rule of law. Mind you, this this lawyer, or he wasn't really a borrowed lawyer, but you know what? He knows the Constitution, and he was trying to represent her. Nowhere in the Constitution does it talk about that you need the bar association to represent yourself. He has the right to do that, and I'm sick of this nonsense that somehow you have to have a barred lawyer. Some private communist organization somehow is codified by law. It makes no sense. That's an unalienable right. You have the right to representation the way you see it. Now, with no one standing up for our rights, you got to take your rights into your own hands. With everyone buying guns and ammo and ammo costing a fortune, don't forget that you need a perfect holster to sit securely so you could properly draw. Also, if you're going out to the range and you're learning how to draw and shoot, a holster where you could draw with ease, but at the other, on the other hand, it's secure when you certainly don't want it to come out is exactly what you need, which is why I recommend we the people holsters Starting at just $40, We The People holsters are custom-molded to fit your firearm exactly. They have thousands of options, including an amazing selection of printed holsters. They also have some good EDC tactical gun belts. Gun belts are very, very important um, to be secure. Otherwise, the, um, the holster won't sit well on you, and your draw will be off. We'll, won't, you won't make time. But anyway, every holster and gun belt comes with a lifetime guarantee. If it doesn't fit perfectly, you can send it back. WeThePeopleHolsters.com slash CR. Also get an additional $10 off with the offer code CR. So go to WeThePeopleHolsters.com forward slash CR to get the cheapest, best American-made holster out there on the market. Now, folks, when we're talking about this sophistry, the excuses, oh, well... They could cut our balls off, but I don't know. It's kind of I don't know if we can do this. Christy Noem, governor of South Dakota, was doing that in Tucker. Tucker show. She was saying, "Well, I spoke with legal authorities, and they're concerned we can't win in court." This is the thing. They don't. Need, not only do they crown the courts king of humanity, they preemptively don't even sign into law good stuff at a fear of the lawsuits. Yet there's no fear of lawsuits against COVID fascism. But again, there's a lot of important lessons we're learning from South Dakota. We're learning the fact that it's good when you finally have conservatives focused on red states. It's making a difference. She's feeling the heat. She could still sign the bill. It's not too late. But remember, it's not just a problem with her. It's all of them. Republicans have a 32-3 to majority in that Senate. Yeah, I I spoke with the bill's sponsor, Rhonda, last night. And, you know, I said, What's up with the 20 to 15 vote? It only passed by five votes. She's like, Yeah, these are the Republicans who always vote with the Democrats on everything. They need to be removed. We need to mark them. If you're from South Dakota, join our team. If you're willing to be a team leader, I still don't have one yet from South Dakota. But here's the problem that's another legislature where they only meet for 37 days. They're already adjourned, except for veto overrides. And there's nothing more we could propose. You know what I found out last night? We were pushing this bill, HB 1194. Aaron Allard, I think is his name, in the House who introduced it. It passed the House with a pretty strong support, but not all Republicans. This is one of the nullification bills to knock down any unconstitutional federal edict. Well, the Senate blocked it. Senate rhinos and the Judiciary Committee. I didn't even know about this. Again, I can't keep up on every bill in every legislature, but this is why we need these standing teams. No one even knew about it. Even the state senator I spoke to was like, well, I I thought that bill was going to go through. You know, I mean, it's hard to keep track of all this. This is why we need these teams to look at the 10 best and worst bills of every session. If they don't introduce it, work with some of these members to get it introduced, draft it for them, and just light a fire under it and start naming names. So finally, these Democrats and all but name only who run as Republicans, we can get them out of office. But also, I mean, there's a need to get legislatures in session more often so we don't have such limited time to fight back. I'm sick of this sophistry of like, oh, I want limited government, so I want a part-time legislature. Yeah, but if you have a full-time court and a full-time health department and the legislature is our only way to fight back, then yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta fight that. But this is a problem in every red state. We have in Arkansas, again, if you're in Arkansas looking to join our team, conaction.network, tell us what part of the state you're from. If you're willing to be a team leader, I don't have a team leader from Arkansas yet as well. Governor Asa Hutchinson, he just vetoed a bill, HB 301, I believe, that zeroes out all the COVID fines and penalties on restaurants and businesses. He vetoed it. Red state governor. Now, luckily, that's one of the states where you only need 51% to override, at least under this circumstance. I'm not sure if it's on all bills or might might just be in this case. Well, hopefully by the end of the day, Senator Dan Sullivan, who's leading that fight, will have a solid veto override. But there's more that can be done in that state. It's every, every state has the same story. It, if you had this degree of conservative focus on all these legislatures, man, we would have an amazing country. Amazing third of the country. even Maybe even half the country. That's what I'm trying to create. But I want to get to our special guest today. Now, before I bring on Josh Hammer, I did want to tell you guys that I am not someone who believes necessarily that the means always justify the ends. But it's like anything in life... That you have to take stock of a totality of circumstances, where we are in, in terms of governance in this country, in terms of our liberties, in terms of society. And you ultimately have to look at where you want to get. And you have to try to do everything you can to get there, assuming you actually believe in that. Now, the difference between the left and the right in this country is that the left is not shy about what they believe in. They are not diffident about their ideology. In fact, they are fully confident in the morality of their immorality. Our side, when they finally get in power, and we're talking about this, all these state legislatures that they control with trifectas and supermajorities, they get a little gun-shy. Well, I don't know if we can do this, Daniel. Well, are, are, are you sure we can get rid of the uh, emergency powers of the government by concurrent resolution? I don't know. And meanwhile, the governor just declared the Fourth Reich, criminalizing our breathing, criminalizing life, liberty, and property. And, and we're sitting and doing thumb-sucking. And this has been the Achilles heel of conservatism for a long time. Where I think, you know, just just to frame what I'm seeing from a lot of Josh's work, and I want him to discuss this in greater detail, is that what we fail to understand is that conservatism, as a guiding strategy at least, was appropriate when we had a limited government republic. So you want to conserve the old order from the French Revolution, right? You want to conserve it. But what happens when you are dislodged? We are dissidents. We are political prisoners. We don't have control of anything, anywhere, in society, in politics, in law, nothing. It is all stacked against us, and they are all using a system that is as antithetical to our founding values and our constitutional values that you could possibly imagine. So if we are going to employ a conservative mindset, so to speak, in terms of our strategies and our process, well, guess what you're going to be conserving? The status quo, which is a living hell. It's not conservatism. You are conserving transgenderism. You're conserving illegal immigration. You're conserving rampant crime. (laughs) You're conserving rampant executive power. This is what we keep talking about with these legislatures that meet for three minutes and congratulate themselves for being part-time limited government legislatures while the courts and the governors and health departments govern and legislate unilaterally for 365 days a year. And nowhere is this more evident than in the court system. We certainly – everyone saw this. They had a front seat to this during the election battles, post-election battles. Where for years, for years, the left was able to break election law, violate federalism, overstep the boundaries of their power, and block every single state whenever Republicans worked so hard to get majorities in Arizona and Pennsylvania and North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, those type of states. And then they tried to implement basic voter verification, voter integrity uh, rules, every one of them was bastardized by the courts. And no one had a problem with that. There was no um, sophistry about, oh, well, I don't like the way we're going about doing this. This is a state issue. No. So then what happened was over the years, the Democrats benefited from the fruits of their labor, the fruits of their crime, violating the Constitution. So now it was easier for them to win elections in those states. I mean, Arizona is a great example. Every single thing they tried to do on election law and illegal immigration for the last 15, 20 years got thrown out by the Ninth Circuit. Every single thing. That made the state blue. Now, what are we supposed to do when we want to fight back? You can't take a passive role when they already illegally got all the policies they wanted in the courts. We're finding this everywhere. We're finding this with South Dakota now, where the governor is saying, I'm too scared of what the courts are going to do. So she's taking a passive role and not even passing a bill that is dealing with an issue that is so bedrock, the courts should have no jurisdiction over infringing upon state powers to deal with that issue. But one after another, we're experiencing this one-way street, this dead end everywhere. And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. If we get people in governorships, in legislatures, if we get people on various state and federal courts, what are we going to do with that power? Now, look, I don't believe that courts should be the final arbiter, even the predominant arbiter of a broad political question that happens to come before it through one individual case. And I'm going to continue fighting that battle. But at the same time, if we are going to believe that courts are the arbiter, well, you better believe we're going to have our judges steer the outcomes the way we want, the way they have their judges steer the outcome the way they want, especially when all we're doing is merely evacuating ourselves from their anti-constitutional jurisprudence. Again, as I always say, you go and kidnap me and lock me up in a house, I'm not going to go and retaliate by burning and robbing and maiming innocent people like the other side does, but I do have the right to break a window and evacuate myself from the predicament you illegally placed me in. And it's a similar thing we're seeing all over the country with big tech and everything. If I I am not going to abide by a system where there's 1789 for their businesses and North Korea for ours. So if the courts are going to say that you can't discriminate against anyone for any reason, a mom-and-pop shop has to bake a cake, very sentimental item with their own hands, for a gay ceremony, when, mind you, they could access that service in a hundred other places within five miles, well, you better believe we're going to apply that equally To every single big corporation colluding with government, by the way, to box out conservatives from obtaining vital goods and services and basically being able to engage in any modern day speech or commerce, e-commerce, anything would be the equivalent of working with government to buy up all the roads and then determining that certain people can't use them. We got to get away from this now. There was a term, and I can't even remember all of his articles because he writes so prolifically, but Josh Hammer coined this term I'm, I'm, I'm now obsessed with, rank intellectual sophistry. And he's been really fighting against that almost ideology of conservatism. And trying to frame anew, what is conservatism headed forward? And he's doing this both in terms of a legal framework and also political pieces, um, as, as you guys well know, Josh is now the opinion editor at Newsweek, which is why there is so much better content there than in the past. He's also a research fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation. He clerked for Judge Ho on the Fifth Circuit Federal Appeals Court, and he writes articles so many places I can't even keep track. But I do want to talk about his Better Originalism article he co-authored with several other authors in the American Mind. Hey, Josh, it's been way too long. Thanks so much for coming back. Daniel, it really has
1: been too long, and we've gotta we gotta catch up more more generally sometime, but it's great to be back on with you today.
0: Well, we're gonna start that right now, right here, right now. So you have a piece titled A Better Originalism. Now, obviously, our side never likes any anything new. By definition, we like keeping the old <laughs> order, you know. But you had a specific line in there. I want to use as a launching point to just give over for people that aren't familiar with some of the terminology and some of these concepts, what you're trying to push for, why, and why it matters. You write, this fixation on procedure ignores the fact that the whole project of the American founding was directed to substantive ends. Take it from there.
1: Yeah, so this really kind of gets to—this is a great question, Daniel. It really kind of gets to the crux of everything that I've been working on recently, um, both is, uh, on politics and uh, on law. And the two really do kind of relate so closely to one another. It's It's really impossible almost to talk about one without talking about the other. So— you know, Look, I I, I, I I take it back to kind of the founding of the modern, quote-unquote, conservative legal movement, okay? And we have to talk about the founding of the Federal Society in 1982, um, which is an organization that I'm a speaker for, okay? I mean, I'm on, I'm on very good terms with the Federal Society. I don't wish them ill or anything like that. But when the Federal Society was founded in 1982, um, when the term originalism kind of first entered the public discourse— It was really kind of heavy on procedure and judicial restraint. And that makes sense when you kind of look at the history, because it was kind of implemented as a direct response to the excesses of the Warren Court and the Burger Court. It was more or less directly responsive to the infamous kind of culture war excesses, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, Roe versus Wade, of course, um, and then also the criminal procedure cases that drive folks like you and me crazy of cases like Miranda versus Arizona, for example. And at that time, it was really kind of emphasized that the proper role of a judge was to just be restrained and to kind of, quote-unquote, strictly interpret the Constitution. And this kind um, of—what was, I think, proper for a time and place— over decades, became, it kind of evolved. It transmogrified, I guess, is honestly the word that I would use. It kind of uh, it, it morphed into something that it wasn't supposed to be. It became something that was taken to be kind of a biblical truth, to be kind of the gospel truth, that this is what we stand for. But in reality, if you take a step back and you look back at the writings of some of my personal favorite American founders, people like Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson— Ah uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, of course, was uh, you know shortly after kind of the 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 true kind of early founding era uh, e- even Justice Joseph's story after him actually. Um, and if you look back at what these titans, these intellectual titans wrote about the law, they necessarily understood that these procedures that we have in place, these constructs, federalism, separation of powers, all of it, is intended to serve loftier ends and you know, what are those loftier ends? Well, we can start with the Declaration of Independence, of course. Um, you know, every, everyone, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the substantive ends of government, You know, your famous kind of uh, natural rights that are enumerated there in the Declaration. And then, of course, also something that I've been making a, a big fuss about of late, because I feel like conservatives have just forgotten this, honestly, the preamble of the Constitution itself actually says, literally, the substantive ends of government that these procedures are there for. So if you don't mind, I'm going to quickly read the preamble, actually. It says, quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Those are the substantive ends of government that, in, in any kind of well-ordered political regime, necessarily must take hierarchical uh, precedence; must be preferred over a truly kind of strictly a-contextual, morally denuded interpretation of a given procedure. The best example of this in the entire founding, of course, is Abraham Lincoln. This was the Lincoln stance in Abraham Lincoln's debates with Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas would make what today we might call a, quote-unquote, strict constructionist argument, right? When he was arguing for uh, you know, popular sovereignty in the Western territories, and he reported to be strictly morally neutral on the question of chattel slavery in those territories, Lincoln said, no, 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 no. The entire purpose of our regime, the entire purpose of the declaration of the preamble of our substantive values— means that that we cannot be morally neutral as to to a country that is half free and half slave. This is, of course, his famous house divided speech. So what I'm trying to do with my work here um, in this joint statement that I co-wrote with some friends at uh, Claremont Institute's American Mind website and some of my closely related work on developing a theory of jurisprudence that I'm calling uh, common good originalism. What I'm trying to do basically is wake conservatives up to the fact that it is erroneous and mistaken to wholly put aside our substantive pursuits of, of justice, the common good, human flourishing, the traditional kind of conservative goals, going back literally all the way to like Aristotle and the Greeks, honestly. Um, we have too often kind of shelved that. In favor of this "quote-unquote" strict constructionist view of jurisprudence, and you know, I'm sure I'm sure that we'll get to this, but in practice, I think that view tends to get you to cases like the Bostock case on Title VII last term. Um, it, it, it can lead to all sorts of bad places, and ultimately, a, a jurisprudence and a politics for the matter—a jurisprudence and a politics that is wholly sapped of any substantive moral value—that is all about procedure. Um, I think is it, it's, yep. it's fundamentally contrary to human nature. I think
0: because it's like there are certain things that you write I want to challenge a little bit and and really delve into because you know it has the potential to be dangerous if we take it in the wrong direction to too much of an extreme like anything. But what really resonated with me is that we're seeing this on a political level as well as on a legal level, whether it's you know so-called conservatives getting in power in states at a federal level governorships and we always seem to be in a predicament where the left just does whatever they want i mean they have one rule they win we lose and that's that's what they pursue with with a great degree of consistency everyone thinks they're very inconsistent there's a lot of hypocrisy but only if you view it in terms of comparing one issue to another if you view it in terms of they have a broader moral order in their mind and they pursue it very consistently so that moral order might mean that a murderer is not really a murderer so he gets let out but if you don't wear a mask you are a murderer and we're going to go after you and we're going to you know we're just talking about Marlena in Michigan being held without bail for opening a business at a time when there's almost nobody alive who's not let out often with without having to post any bail or low bail. And that's hypocrisy, but not really, because that's their moral order, immoral order. And then when it comes to our side, they get very gun-shy. So it's like... Well, I don't know if we can do this. Let me give you a classic example, and I want to see if, you, if this fits into your philosophy or if it's something else. I want to use specific examples so we don't talk over people with, with broad terms. So yep. one of the things I'm dealing with is that classic example is the mask mandate. It, it, is, it shocks the consciousness. I mean, if we were talking a year ago, 13 months ago, we could have never imagined that government could criminalize our negative state of being. The definition of individual liberty, according to Blackstone, um, just walking in locomotion, you're breathing. No, uh, no, you can't do that unless you take an affirmative action against your personage, right? That then in, in an era where everything is a fundamental right, except for what actually is, government could do that all the time, every place, three-year-old kids, seven hours a day, you know, not even limited to a time or a place, everywhere, indefinitely, in most parts of the country. Um, so you have this insanity that comes about. So we're like, well, that whole thing should have never gotten off the ground, but we need to rectify that because that created a culture in society now where you literally cannot obtain goods and services by breathing freely. So even in a state where the governor doesn't have a mandate or takes it off, everyone's mandating it. And there's a bill I'm pushing in Tennessee that would simply apply – anti-discrimination law that we apply in in other circumstances that are much more either expensive or cumbersome or officious and meddlesome. And just say, just don't deny service to someone for not wearing a mask or a medical device. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're regulating businesses. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? We regulated the hell out of businesses for the the most severe and protracted period in in our history. And no one seemed to have an issue with that so at some point you got to even up the score in other words isn't that true on a legal level what you're saying that you can't have the other side spending 70 years using the judiciary as a tool to get their outcomes and then when it cases come before us we're completely neutral in terms of outcomes is that kind of what what you're driving at
1: yeah that's exactly what i'm driving at daniel um you know there's there's a lot of debate on the American right, at least since Trump was elected, as to whether quote-unquote liberalism has failed, right? Patrick Deneen of No Name famously wrote a book on this in 2018. And when, when people on the right use the term liberalism in that respect, they don't mean progressivism, obviously. They're talking about kind of enlightenment liberalism. Um, I, I have mixed feelings on that specific topic, but I think it's important to note that when conservatives kind of criticize the quote-unquote liberal order... What they're criticizing is not necessarily the procedure or the mechanisms themselves. They're criticizing the fact that we don't share anything in common anymore, nothing whatsoever. Yes. So when, so when you're concerned, there is no Bible in the schools. There's no religiosity. There is no culture. There is no uh, linguistic cohesion. Obviously, there's no assimilation. I mean, you write about this all the time at the border and everything. We don't. In so many respects, we're not even a nation anymore. We're not a cohesive polity. So when you're at that juncture, does it really kind of necessarily um, – is it or should it be the be-all, end-all of your politics to attempt to just, quote-unquote, conserve something that no longer exists? Um, that's kind of – as you teased at the outset, I think you accurately tease it. That's kind of the, kind of the nature of where we on the American right, I think, are. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly dire situation, obviously. So you know, amidst that backdrop – Um, Where where the left, at least since the New Deal era, since the 1930s, has been overtly, expressly, and unapologetically outcome-oriented in their their jurisprudence, um, in their approach to politics in general. Does it make sense for conservatives to always show up with one hand tied behind their back? Or does it make at least a little more sense to conceive of a legitimate way to at least put a very mild thumb on the scale – in favor of trying to restore the substantive values of the regime in the first place. Um, and if you want to kind of get down to like the nuts and bolts of it, that's actually really kind of all I'm proposing. So just to give you like a, good, like a quick example, there are any number of kind of you know provisions in the Constitution that are pretty unambiguous, right? I mean, if we're, if we're looking at the original meeting, it's, it's fairly obvious. Um, there's really not a whole lot that you can do with it. What I'm talking about is really only where there's kind of an ambiguous provision where, you know, a reasonable interpreter could go one of multiple ways. Then that's where I'm saying that it is appropriate to look to the purpose of government, to look to the purpose of our regime as expressed in the declaration and the preamble to put a very mild thumb on the scale. It's a fairly mild proposal, honestly, actually, if you kind of get down to the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of it, Um, because I do agree with you, Daniel. I do agree with you. I'm not a means, always justify the ends kind of guy. Um, that's not my stance. Um, I I I kind of call that conservative nihilism, and that's 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 not my stance. Uh, on the contrary, I think kind of what I'm advocating, you know, Hamilton, Marshall, Lincoln, etc., is kind of just our actual inheritance. It's kind of like the old kind of Blackstone view of English common law that we're just kind of in, inheriting. Um, but I do agree with you, Daniel. I mean, whether where the left is this overtly outcome oriented, where they have are are. T- Totally, totally, totally not afraid to – to, to they won't pull any punches whatsoever in reaching their outcome no matter how destructive of the social fabric it is, no matter how ludicrous it is as a matter of legal interpretation. Doesn't it make sense at least for us to put a slight thumb on this scale where, a, where it can go one of multiple ways? I mean surely that has to be the situation given the state of the country in the year 2021 I think.
0: So, I wanted to get before I talk about some of the pitfalls and how to prevent them, you know, this from from swinging in the other direction. I want to talk about COVID. Um, And what I find astounding, this came in the backdrop of a period of time that we witnessed where literally the courts ruled over everything, everything a state, the political branches wanted to do. They said it's unconstitutional, and, and and you know we we had just gotten through before the virus with the previous border wave, where literally, I mean, there was nothing Trump was able to do to secure the border. Uh, everyone had a right to um, come into the country. They had a cause of action. They had standing in court. They even got standing either through themselves or through third party NGOs to sue Trump's foreign policy. You know, agreements he made with um other sovereign nations uh, obviously the triangle the northern triangle countries and Mexico about asylum policies that was able to be brought to court they were able to put injunctions on it everyone has a right every criminal you know they have standing they anything they want to do and then we had the most severe exercise of unbridled executive power since the settlement of this continent i mean literally we talk about this every day that it is Something that makes King George look like a patriot. Um, He never did any of this stuff. It was really very limited what he did. Now, the founders smartly saw that. They, They realized you have to fight back... While you can nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud is what what um, Adam said, and that was really Patrick Henry's "Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death" speech that we're celebrating today, 245th anniversary. Um, he talked about that point because he was responding to people are like, "Why are you picking a fight with such a powerful nation? You're unlikely to win. Is it really that bad? You know, a couple pence a tax for tea," um, and and that was that was the point. They said, "Well, yeah, you know." You'll wait until it's bad, and then you can no longer fight back. Which is how I really feel we are today—that it's so severe, we don't have any power, we don't even have any ability to fight back, um, even through political means, much less through the means that I think our founders had in mind uh, under this situation. So what I'm trying to figure out is, we had—I mean, you know—we always say you're violating my rights conversationally, but you know, it's not really. Very rarely did government really violate your rights, historically, in America. In this case, it was like, oh my gosh, your body, your breath, the breath of your two-year-old. Um, you know, obviously all the property rights. Stay-at-home orders. No need to, to pro- provide evidentiary standards. No need to show your work. No balancing interest test. Nothing. No time limit just covid a noun a verb and a command in a sentence and you could do anything you want to a human being that is what we've learned and shockingly we have nowhere to go in the courts like and this really is very individualized it's very i mean look i i want to breathe i want to be able to walk around i want to be, be able to open my business no fifth amendment takings clause ca- cases nothing i'm not finding anything is this a symptom of what you're talking about? This kind of restraint that we're seeing from some of the, these conservative judges, uh, where they just like, look, you know, the state could kind of do what they want, and uh, there's nothing we can do about that.
1: So, you're asking a great question, Daniel. This, this, this is something that you and I have privately messaged a little bit about, but just to kind of bring it to your listeners. Um, where the heck are the libertarian litigators during this uh, most draconian restriction on individual liberty in the history of the American regime? I, I I literally do not understand. I mean, where is Cato? Where is the Pacific Legal Foundation? Where is the Institute for Justice? Where, there are so there there are many reasons for this, but for lots of kind of institutional reasons, for reasons of kind of like cocktail party circuit, all that stuff. There's a lot more kind of institutional money on the American right. For kind of uh, more libertarian-leaning causes than kind of more socially or or religiously or morally, you know, traditionally yep. conservative causes. So given how well-funded these libertarian shops are, I, I for the life of me cannot make sense as to what you're saying, Daniel, as to why there has been a single takings clause case. It, it, it's it, it's remarkable. And, you know, I, I, I come back, um, Jesse Merriam, who is really fabulous, actually, um, he's a professor, I, I think, at Patrick Henry College, actually, which is fitting yeah. given what we were talking about, about Patrick Henry. Um, he had a really nice short piece uh, at the same website we were talking about, at Claremont Institute's American Mind website a couple weeks ago, talking about um, how, you know, the, ACL, the ACLU, as you and I both know, Daniel, just went to war against the Trump administration on issue after issue, on the, on the quote-unquote travel ban, um, you know, on, on sanctuary cities, DACA removal, everything, right? The ACLU just went to war on case after case after case. And um, our people were just totally silent. And one reason that, uh, that Jesse thinks is the case, and one that I, I, I certainly think is the case, and I suspect you're probably sympathetic to this, is that a lot of these kind of um, libertarian-centric kind of legal shops are so disproportionately focused on nerdy, obscure, non-civilizational issues that just frankly don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things. So just to take like one example here, um, you know, uh, the Institute for Justice, which to be clear, does a lot of good work. OK, like I, I, I have friends there. I, I, I think very highly of some of their work, but like they are so obsessed with um, with occupational licensing reform and this notion that you know a, a, that that you have a Fourteenth Amendment right uh, to like braid someone's hair without having to get a license that may or may not be good constitutional law. Okay, I see arguments on, on both sides of that particular example, for example. But does that issue come close to being as important as what we're seeing with the COVID? fascism stuff, with the takings, with with your right to not have a diaper on your face to breathe. So I I think there's, there's kind of like an ethos that people have gotten yep. so obsessed. I, qualified immunity in, in the policing context is a perfect example of this, too. Um, you know, the, I, I, we don't need to do like a whole thing on qualified immunity, but that obviously kind of entered the conversation last summer after the whole George Floyd stuff and quote unquote police reform kind of entered the, the mainstream discourse. Um, these issues are such distractions. Yeah. Um, and we really need like actually like authentically conservative litigators, uh, at, 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 like public interest law firms, I guess, um, to actually kind of step up and fill some of this void. But, um, yeah, look, certainly uh, I, I – I, to the answer kind of the other part of your question, which I uh, – uh, and, and I agree with the sentiment here as well. I do think that part of this kind of ethos of restraint, of kind of hands off of uh, – to an extent, you, you can almost connect the dots – from quote-unquote strict constructionism in constitutional interpretation to kind of a a strategic decision by a public interest law firm to not aggressively pursue cases like this, right? Does that make sense? I mean, you can almost kind of kind of connect the dots. Well, I think from kind you answered hands-on...
0: it because I, I think this is a social issue, even though this is like the epitome of property rights. And actually, speaking of occupational licensing, that's the way they're getting them. This actually is about that, right, with, with the Michigan case – um, right. they, they could open up a, a, their restaurant now, but the point is they took away her license when she was open before. So now they got her on being open without a license. So that's actually technically what it's about. Um, but I think you and I both know masks have become a social issue. That's become that. I always say it's the new gay marriage. It's like, it's untouchable. You can't touch that issue. So, even though it's technically, it should be the bread and butter of individual liberty for libertarians. I mean, especially if you're into the Ninth Amendment stuff, right. you know, that it's certainly there. Um, but, and, and, and look, you know, I, my view is that Jacob Howard, um, he was the guy who really wrote the, a chunk of the 14th Amendment in the 1860s, Senate Judiciary Committee chairman from Ohio. He he defined a fundamental right as lying at the basis of all society and without which a people cannot exist except as slaves subject to a despotism. And I really do believe that if you cannot walk anywhere without covering your nose and your mouth, to me that really is like that because, you know, a lot of guys are saying, Well, Daniel, where where is it in the constitution? Well, I don't know, what if government said you have to walk around buck naked? (laughs) You know where where is that in the Constitution that you have a right? You know maybe maybe this is where you and I often would apply the doctrine of it's a tyrannical law, it's a stupid law, but nonetheless it is you know something that's dealt with locally in the political process. But I would say you reach a point with certain things that it is natural law. There it is natural law already, and and I would say that here too. It's not just saying like if they say everyone has to walk around with a yellow star or say you know a sign that says kick me here it's on your mouth and your nose. And so what that's doing is it's regulating your breath. Um you know, obviously we all agree government can't do every positive action to you certainly, but if if we're saying this is okay, that means that they could regulate an inactivity force you to take a positive action against your body, not just say okay you're visiting a nursing home, maybe you're on a public train or something, but everywhere. Um to me, there's no way that meets constitutional muster, but I can't find anywhere where they'll bite at this, even 12 months later, where the evidence swings so much against this, and and this is what we're having trouble with. To me, I believe that is the most despotic thing around, and I believe everything in must be harnessed to fight it, throw sand in the gears, and... I'm just telling you, Josh, when I'm looking at all of these state legislatures after a year of the greatest tyranny ever, it's a lot of hemming and hawing. And somehow the other side could do the most radical things. And we never question them. Like, hey, are you able to do that? But somehow, if we just merely want to fight back against what they did illegally, there's a hundred different excuses of why we can't do that. You know, you you heard um, Christy Nome was saying, she doesn't want to place an administrative burden on the public universities uh, to, to find out who's a male or a female. An administrative burden.
1: Well, I I I I, mean, I for one have some easier ways to determine who's a male and female other than you know <laughs> administrative law. I can think of some easier ways in human nature to discover that that deep abiding mystery. Um, but look, you know, I, I I don't understand, and you're a little more on top of this than I am, obviously. But I don't fully understand why these deep red states. I mean, you've written about the about the West Virginia situation numerous times. Um, I, for the life of me, just do not understand how the median West Virginia legislator looks at himself in the mirror um, a year into this thing. You know, 365 plus days into 15 days to slow the spread, and does not say, huh. Are we overreacting by making people walk around the their sidewalks in their neighborhoods with these face diapers on? It, 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 it is just astounding to me. And, you know, look, it, it, speaking personally here, I remember when this thing first started, OK, you know, right around a year ago. Um, I, I remember going on kind of Sarah Gonzalez's podcast uh, on, on, on Blaze TV quite a bit. And at the the very outset of this, when we like really didn't know anything, um, I I was kind of a little bit more of on team air on the side of caution than I think some of my um, fellow conservatives were. But I would say like less than a month later, like literally like by two and a half, three weeks later at the most, already at that early stage, it was just astoundingly obvious that this was nothing other than a power grab, that this was literally nothing other than a pure power grab in kind of the very worst of the Rahm Emanuel sense. You know, Rahm Emanuel has that famous line about uh, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and that's obviously what's happening here. But what's sad is not that it's happened in blue states. We expect that. That's Rahm Emanuel's line. That's kind of Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo, fulfilling what they you know, purport and profess to stand for. The sad part is that conservatives, with rare exceptions, you know, with people like, I guess, like Ron DeSantis, for example, uh, exceptions like that, Just weren't actually looking at the evidence. That they were kind of just effectively bullied into this cult. And you know, I I have never thought of being a conservative as being cult-like. I have never thought of myself as being part of like a cult-like movement where I can just kind of like get shepherded and be told to believe things that that I don't that I don't believe. No. The the entire point of of what it means to be a conservative, as I as I understand it, to get back to like first principles here is what I would call epistemological humility. And what that means is that we are humble about that which we do not know. That was the exact same reason that I was kind of team error on the side of caution at the outset. And that was the exact same reason that I was team you know mask skepticism a month later. Because at the outset, we knew nothing. And then very quickly, it became obvious that this virus was not nearly as deadly as we thought it was, that politicians were overreacting. So I think just in general, and we see this both in law and in jurisprudence, actually. It's a kind of a nice way to, to connect the dots here. In general, we see people on the right of center who have just, I think, forsaken this notion of epistemological humility, about being humble about which, that which you know and that which you do not know. And in, instead of that, they've elevated kind of rigid dogma and and in kind of an inflexibility about changing their minds, about adapting to new circumstances, adapting to new evidence, new data, et cetera. Um, I don't think that's particularly conservative uh, if we're, as a matter of the nomenclature, as a matter of what the word actually means. And certainly in the context of COVID lockdowns and masks and everything, it has been deeply destructive, obviously, um, to uh, to the American polity, to the American people. I mean, I, Daniel, I, I I genuinely do not know if the founding fathers would have fought a, a, a war. I, I literally cannot tell you that I'm convinced they would have fought a, a revolutionary war if they had known that you know, 230, 240 years later that this is what the republic would look like, that people would just docilely submit like this. I I, I would be lying to you if I were confident that they would have done that. It, it, it yep. really is quite sad. It, it,
0: it is truly shocking, and we're almost out of time, but I want to get to the 800-pound gorilla in the room here. Again, going back to your piece in the American mind, people could go and find it, um, a new originalism um, – You and three other authors write, We believe in a jurisprudence that is in the truest and most profound sense of the term conservative in preserving the moral ground of a classic jurisprudence. And you go on to write, It is a conservative jurisprudence worthy worthy of a complementary conservative politics that is able, willing, and eager to exercise political power in the service of good political order or justice in accord with nature and morality. So the question everyone's going to ask you automatically is, isn't this doing what the left does so they 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 look at an outcome they want the outcome they'll grab any case they can and you know write an opinion based on it in order to achieve an outcome isn't that they'll say isn't that this where you're headed with what you call common good originalism that we're going to start using the levers of power if it's the courts if it's where wherever it is to start steering an outcome, what are sort of the modulations, the checks, the balance of such a policy that it doesn't become, you know, what the left does is say a living and breathing constitution. And we just want—we want certain outcomes, and we're just going to achieve them by hook or by croak?
1: Yeah, no, the, this really is uh, definitely the most controversial aspect of everything I'm saying. So I'm happy that we're kind of ending on this note. So just like a bit of. Um, just a slightly, slightly more history here. Um, I actually kind of intended uh, what I call common good originalism to be something of actually a middle ground position. So the, the history, the context here, I, I, was, I was initially actually directly responding um, to an essay from Adrian Vermeule, a, a Harvard Law School professor and, and a friend of mine. Um, and Adrian wrote an essay at The Atlantic magazine um, uh, just, uh, just around a year ago. It was late March of last year uh, called Common Good Constitutionalism. Um, and Adrian kind of uses a lot of the same buzzwords that I use: um, common good, you know, health uh, of the polity, cohesion, etc. But he disparages originalism and instead identifies himself as as, as a as basically being a right wing living constitutionalist. Um, he, he's a he's a great admirer of Ronald Dworkin who is kind of the uh, intellectual godfather of liberal living constitutionalism. So he basically would take that and then just imbue uh, his own values. Um, I don't think that's misquoting his position. He's pretty uh, expressed and explicit about that. What I'm taking, I think, is is kind of a more prudential kind of middle ground stance and saying that we can arrive at some of these same values in a more legitimate sense— because this actually is the originalism properly understood of many of the leading founders of kind of Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, James Wilson, and kind of uh, the Federalist uh, Party, not the Federal Society, but the Federalist Party and kind of the first party system. Um, so that's kind, of, um, that's kind of my claim here. Now, the, the way this connects back to the politics, because you know, one theme that we've seen in this conversation is how much they connect with one another here. Um, is that it kind of gets us back to what I was saying earlier about how the country is just being run over roughshod by 50 60 70 years now of not just progressive law but progressive politics and you know look Daniel I I, I highly value individual liberty okay um, you, know, I, 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 you know I you know you and I were I, I'm Jewish you're Jewish I mean I would never want to live in a totalitarian country for God's sake I I, I look at the Chinese regime, and I wince and I, I am angered by what I see them doing as far as constant surveillance to say nothing, of course, of the genocide in Xinjiang and all their various other atrocities. My, my point, though, and I, and, I, and I think some people on the right, people like, um, like, like Josh Hawley have, have kind of expressed a similar sentiment, is whether we've gone too far— um, in some respects, at least, towards kind of maximizing an, a, a weird conception of individual liberty that gets too quickly turned uh, into what we would call licentiousness or kind of immorality. So, for example, you know, in 2019, when David French infamously called uh, mm. Drag Queen sto- Story Hour a quote, blessing of liberty, that kind of led Sorbomari to write his now infamous essay against David Frenchism. That's a good example of that, right? When we let liberty become such a unique end unto itself, we forget everything else we stand yep. for. We get, we we get to that. We and get we don't to even get liberty, of,
0: Josh. I mean, this is the yeah, exactly. irony. This is the irony. Like, this was the Super Bowl. This was the time I expected that movement. Like, I know it's not going to be there for us on social issues and crime and immigration, but by golly, this was the time that this movement they built in, in the political system, but really in the in the court system and these libertarian legal interests, men with COVID fascism. But we have the licentiousness with COVID fascism. Like, that's, that's the irony. We have the worst of all ends we don't have the individual liberty um you're and and you're right what you're saying is anyone who takes a look at the arcane laws of states you will see that in the 1800s at a time when they couldn't have envisioned forcing people to wear a diaper and and all this stuff the the nanny state stuff they didn't have any of this we were truly libertarian they really had these state laws governing the moral or order right
1: well, you know, the irony, Daniel, is that kind of back in the day, um, the quote unquote state police powers back in kind of old school constitutional law, um, the states have police powers over health, uh, public safety and morality. Those are like the three things. Um, but, you know, uh, the middle of the 20th century, uh, with ultimately leading to the Warren court, um, the end of school prayer in schools back in the 1960s, all, all the things like that just totally gutted and eradicated that. And um, both politically and legally, it seems to me that the American right, that American conservatives have not fought strongly enough to countervail that. Um, we've gotten too obsessed um, with the notion that all we need to do is limit government, limit government, limit government, maximize liberty, maximize liberty, maximize liberty. And, and again, I, I am not trying, I am not a big government guy, obviously. I just think that we need greater balance in what we call for here. And there's a number of like practical ways this plays out, for example, right? Like big tech is a great example, okay? Um, there's, I, there's nothing particularly conservative, from my perspective at least, about the government just taking a totally kind of hands-off approach and basically saying, oh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, you go acquire your 80 90% market share, censor whoever the hell you want to censor. I, 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 how is that conservative? I mean, how is that about kind of conserving our, our, you know, our ethos of free speech? How is that about conserving our, our way of life? How is that about conserving kind of like the, the national health and cohesion and unity and all this stuff that conservatives at least historically have valued? Um, but, you know, I, I mean, con- we've never been like fully kind of hands off government deregulate everything. I mean, conservatives, of course, historically have supported regulations on pornography, prostitution, any, 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 any number of things like that, too. So I, I guess I'm just trying to kind of encourage people on the right, both as a matter of politics and of law, of kind of rediscovering this notion that balance is important and specifically kind of the virtue of prudence, which is a term that is not very kind of often bandied about in our discourse anymore. Um, But, you know, I mentioned Lincoln earlier. Lincoln is actually kind of the perfect example of means and ends being properly applied, I think, Mm. because Lincoln was actually highly prudential. He was fairly moderate as far as his approach to eradicating slavery. He was not nearly as far, of course. As, um, as the radical Republicans, right, as Thaddeus Stevens and people like him, he, he frankly pissed them off because he did not want to abolish slavery immediately um, and you know, basically round up the Confederates and shoot them. I, I'm exaggerating slightly, but you understand what I'm saying. But he understood that prudence was important in, in achieving one's ends via the important means. That's kind of the same thing that I'm trying to channel here with, with a lot of my recent work that, that we've been discussing.
0: You know, I just want to end with this note and get your quick final comment. What you're talking about reminds me a lot um, a common good originalism of what Scalia wrote in Brown v. Plata 2011. This was the case where uh, the federal courts and the Supreme Court agreed with it, mandated that California release thousands of prisoners. They said it's cruel and unusual punishment. There's It's overcrowding. You just have to release them. And... You know, Scalia was a hyper technical guy, and you even you know tweak him a little bit in in a couple of your articles that you felt he didn't quite speak to the common good um, in in his dissent in Windsor and with the first major gay marriage case. Although I do, I would argue he, I think he did in the in the final one, Obergefell. But I think generally he actually did. You know, when you talk about his dissent in um, the VMI case. Uh, uh, you know, integrating women into the Virginia military institution, he often really did speak to culture. He really was a culture warrior, and you really don't have them in con- conservative judges anymore. He he opened up the dissent by saying, "There comes before us now and then a case whose proper outcome is so clearly indicated by tradition and common sense that its decision ought to shape the law rather than vice versa." One would think that before allowing the decree of a federal district court to release forty-six thousand convicted felons, this court would be bound would, would would bend every effort to read the law in such a way as to avoid that outrageous result. Today, quite to the contrary, the court disregards stringently drawn provisions on the governing statute and traditional constitutional limitations upon the power of a federal judge in order to uphold the absurd. And and then he went on to really, you know, inveigh against the specific, uh. Rationale and the specific statutory claims in that case. But he prefaced it by saying, you know, sometimes you just have a case where, you know, I don't know, Daniel, but the technically illegals could just flood. They have a right to asylum. Or, you know, yeah, I mean, a guy has a right to, um, you know, transgenderism is, is just kind of where it's at in the law. Just certain outcomes, it's just, I don't need to read the case. I don't need to read the arguments. I don't need to read the statute. I know that can't be the result. Is that kind of the capstone of what you're saying? Yeah, that, that's literally exactly what I'm saying, Daniel.
1: I mean, let's take the Bostock case, okay? Bostock was kind of the case that got me kind of thinking about all this in the first place. And you know, just to remind the listeners, Bostock was a case that came out uh, towards the end of last Supreme Court term, June 2020. It, it involved Title VII, which you know is the provision of the Civil Rights Act that deals with uh, hiring and firing employment discrimination. And a 6-3 court led by Justice Gorsuch, you know, who was Justice Scalia's replacement on the court. Justice Gorsuch says that uh, discrimination, quote, on the basis of sex in Title VII, actually means discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or, quote-unquote, gender identity. Um, you know, just to take the obvious point here, quote-unquote, gender identity wasn't a thing <laughs> in 1964 <laughs> when the Civil Rights Act was drafted. Okay? So, you know, the— The mental gymnastics that one has to um, uh, invoke and justify in order to reach an outcome like that, an outcome that is purporting to be extremely strict to the text, we've kind of lost the ability to just use common sense. Um, I think both sides are just kind of, uh, in many sense, are just too obsessed with dogma. Um, They're too obsessed with these inflexible, rigid uh, things that, that, that they believe to be truth. We need to kind of rediscover a little bit more pragmatism and and and, um, and prudence, frankly, um, as far as how we do both politics and law. And yeah, there are certain things that should just be astoundingly obvious um, from a judge's perspective that this is obviously not what the text of the statute means, what the drafters intended, or anything like that, right? Um, so we see the lower courts now um, are faced with all sorts of issues. You know, it's funny in the Bostock case, Justice Gorsuch says oh, you know, I'm only ruling on Title Seven, but we haven't had briefing on Title IX or Title Ten or whatever, so I don't purport to rule on those. <laughs> You'll, you know, as I, I, as all of us point out at the time, how the hell do you think that's going to play out in the lower courts? Okay? I mean, you give these guys an inch, they take it a mile. So sure enough, the lower courts have, are obviously kind of stretching this to all the other various titles of the Civil Rights Act. But I, I guess my point here is that if we, were to, if, we, if we were to find a kind of a rare, courageous lower court judge— um, this would be a great time to—I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying to cite me or in an opinion, an opinion or whatever, but to kind of channel what I'm getting at, to kind of channel what I'm saying and say, okay, the court, for better or for worse, has ruled on Title VII, but for X, Y, Z reasons, for the declaration, the preamble, common yeah. sense, common good, whatever, I'm not going to take this an inch further. So, yeah, that would be a great example of what I'm getting at, I think.
0: Perfect. Well, always engaging stuff, Josh. Um, This has gone really long, but I know you get the two of us on together. uh, We can't stop talking. So much good content, folks. We are way out of time, so we're going to have to end it here. There's a lot going on. The Boulder shooter, turns out. This guy was an ISIS sympathizer, which is why we haven't heard about it. Uh, Again, talking about about a two-tier justice system. We'll have more on that tomorrow. Folks, sign up for conaction.network as always. Uh, We're creating more teams Till tomorrow. Same time, same place. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.